Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for another morning. Thank you, God, for Sundays. Thank you for bringing us here. We come now, God, to the, to the meat of it all when we open up your word and our souls search for you to speak to us. God, we know that your word is truth. Those are the very words that Jesus himself prayed. And that that would be the power that would make us holy and sanctified, your word, the truthfulness of your word. God, make us a people who wholeheartedly are committed to and believe your word. Not, not when it agrees with us or not when it fits with us and our experiences, but just as it is, as it is the true word of God. And as we look today, Father, to First Peter, we ask that you would give us understanding and increase our faith through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is where we've been the past couple of weeks, and this is where we will be now for quite some time. If you want to keep your, the ribbon in your, book, in your Bible there, or your bookmark, you're going to be there for a while. If you didn't bring your own Bible, then we have pew Bibles there, and it's page 1,112. 1112. 1,112. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles, we want you to turn there and be able to follow along. We're at 1 Peter. In the past couple weeks, the 1 Peter had been introduction. The first week, I, I introduced that it was Peter and who it was to. And I, I mostly talked about who Peter was and what we know from all of Scripture about this one Peter who is an apostle. And I talked about how he is the leader of the twelve and he was very much so bold and brave and outspoken and, and we can identify with him. But then last week, we looked at uh, the second half of his introduction, which is verse 2, where it says that the elect exiles who he's writing to, so Christians, are that way according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to Christian people. If you're a believer in Jesus, then this letter uh, goes to you as well. But Peter, when describing Christians, uses some big strong stuff there which I preached on last week. Peter wants us to know that Peter is focused on God, believers are focused on God, and this Word is focused on God and should cause believers to further focus on God. Today we will start with verse 3 and we get into the body of it. If you flip, you'll see that 1 Peter is five chapters long. It's not a very long letter. In my Bible it is about four pages total. So it's not a whole lot. There are five chapters. And today starts the body of it. I've told you before, and we're going to see this uh, throughout today's passage, that 1 Peter is written to persecuted Christians. In first century, remember, Peter is writing now after Christ has risen from the grave and ascended up into heaven. Peter is writing somewhere mid to late first century, and he's writing to those Christian people who have completely identified and aligned themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior and His teaching. Now that's controversial to do that. It's controversial today to completely line your entire life with the teaching of Jesus. It is. And it was controversial then. And depending on where you're living in the world, and depending on what, what time you're living in the world, the consequences are a little bit different. We are starting to see now in our country some consequences if you say that you believe wholeheartedly everything that Jesus teaches. 
We're starting to see some consequences like that. In other parts of the world right now, it's really harsh. It's rough. There's a lot of persecution that is happening in the world for people who say they are followers of Jesus and believers in God's Word. Peter is writing to those people to give them a confidence, to give them an assurance to build them up. Read with me, if you will, today at 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to cover verses 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. (coughs) In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter begins this letter, the body of it, with the whole idea which comes from the work of God in our lives, the praise of God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants you and I to realize that when you and I get to the place where we are reflecting on all that our lives are, reflecting on the goodness and grace of God in our lives, that the proper response to that, both grace-wise and mercy-wise, is praise God. The distinction between grace and mercy is a a very simple one. Grace would be getting things that you don't deserve. Grace is getting things that you don't deserve. When when you don't deserve a gift and somebody just comes and gives you a gift, you say, wow, that was gracious of you. That's what grace is. It's getting something that you don't deserve. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith. When God saves somebody, He saves them and they didn't even deserve to be saved, but God just does that. That's what grace is, getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is along the same lines, just from a different angle. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting something you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I remember when I was a kid, my dad would wrestle with me and and rough me up a little bit, and when he would get me to a place uh, where I couldn't go any further, nowadays people say you tap out. My dad told me you had to cry uncle. That's what my dad taught me. You yell uncle, and that means you're going to quit. All right? That's the same thing as saying mercy, mercy, stop. You know, when you see those blue lights behind the car, you get pulled over by a cop, and all of a sudden your mind starts trying to figure out, what have I done wrong? Was I speeding or whatever? Your first prayer, I know, like mine is, God, have mercy on me. I know I was speeding. I know that I shouldn't have been doing this, but please, God, help me to not get this ticket. Right? We're asking God to do something to us that we do deserve, and we're hoping that in His mercy we just wouldn't get that ticket. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. When it comes to God, the Bible says that we have disobeyed. Our hearts tell us that we long for things other than God. We have have rebelled. The Bible says that all of us have turned away, turned to our own ways away from God. 
If God is to ever come toward us with anything positive and loving, it is simply by grace and mercy. Grace that He's giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy, He's not giving us what we do deserve. Punishment. The very fact that you and I have rebelled against God in the past, cursed God with our lives and our lifestyles, and He has not punished us already, is mercy. And Peter knows this. He begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Praise God that we know Him. Praise God that we know about Him. Praise God that we're in position to understand Him. Praise God for all of the goodness that is in our lives. Now I want to remind you, which we've talked about already and we're going to see as we keep going through Peter, this is not like a praise God, I've got it all good. It's pretty common in the world today when things are going all good for people, for people to remind, for, for, for people to say, God is good. But the Bible wants us to understand that God is good at all times, regardless of what we're going through. That if we're going through hard times, if things are not going the way we, we would expect them to go, that God is still good. We're not to be saying that God is good only when we are aware that God is good. We're to be saying God is good when our lives seem to be falling apart. God is good all the time, the Bible teaches. So Peter's not saying this because he's a rich man or an uppity man and it's all going well for him and the blessings of God are so much on him. That's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the fact that God has been attentive to him. That God has brought him near to, to, to God. That God has saved him through Jesus. That God is using Peter in the lives of other believers and that there is a whole world of people out there who are looking to Christ and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And Peter is writing a letter to people this way. And so Peter, with all of this in mind, says, Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. I want to ask you here today, if your life and the circumstances in your life and the events that you go through in your life and the graces of God and the mercies of God in your life cause you to say, praise God. Do you ever pause to say, man, praise God for what He is doing. Praise God for His grace in my life and praise God for His mercy in my life. Praise God for the things He's given me that I don't deserve and praise God for the many, many, many countless mercies of things that I have not received that I actually do deserve. This is how Peter begins. So as Peter writes moving forward, he wants us to say, praise God, because here's what we have. Here's what we know. Here's who we are. And going just through verse 9 today, I want us to look at just two points. Number one, praise God that we have, number one, hope in our future salvation. Hope in our future salvation. And number two, praise God that we have joy until our salvation comes. Praise God that we have joy until our salvation comes. Number one, hope in our future salvation. Number two, joy until our salvation comes. Keep reading with me, if you will, in the second part of verse 3. He says, again, we're praising God, and now here is why. According to His great mercy, I've already talked about mercy, He, that is God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God in His mercy in His mercy, has done a work in our lives that has given us hope. Christians of all people that there are, are those people who truly deep down have a genuine hope. Now hope is a word that we know because we're real familiar with it and it's used a lot, but it is often used a little bit out of its real meaning and context. You and I use the word hope a lot to mean like we wish. 
That's what we usually use it as. And that's not really ultimately what hope is. You know, we might say, you know, I, I hope that this year that, that all three, North Carolina, UK, and U of L, would all make the final four. That would be awesome. And I, I hope that that happens. That's just wishful thinking. I, you know, there's no real grounds of whether that will or not. But that's often how we use the word hope. And that's not exactly right. Hope is more like a confidence, a, having a confident in optimism that there are some things that I know that cause me to be trusting in that. To, to, to use the word hope rightly, it is to say that I know some things and I have confidence in some things that things are going to be better. That's what hope is. He uses this word here to say that God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Let me start with this caused us to be born again. Born again is one of those big, strong uh, synonyms, one of those explanations of what it means to be saved. If you're truly a Christian here today, and you think God has changed your heart and caused you to be a believer in Jesus, and that your sins are forgiven and you are going to heaven, that means that you've been born again. This phrase comes from John chapter 3, where a leader of the Jews, a Pharisee, a teacher, a leader of the Jews that did not yet believe in the Savior, comes to Jesus secretly by night so that other people don't know. And he says, teacher, we know that you are from God. Nobody can teach the way you teach Jesus unless he is from God. So we know that. Now tell me, what do I have to do to have eternal life? This is the age-old question. This is what everybody wants to know. I get to do funerals all the time. I do so many funerals. And at all of these funerals, it doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter if they ever once believed in God. Matter of fact, I've had people tell me that they've never believed in God when talking about their loved one that just passed away. And every single time, every single time, they say they're in a better place. Every single time. You and I are wanting there to be a hope that there is more to this life than life itself. You and I are wanting there to be a hope that there is something after death. Because life leaves us hoping and, and longing for that. It leaves us thinking, this is not right. So he comes and he says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered very plainly, you must be born again. He doesn't say believe in Jesus. He doesn't say you've got to have your sins forgiven. There's a lot of different answers, but he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, teacher, what, what do you mean? You want me to go back into my mom's belly and literally be born again? And Jesus, no. Jesus says, how are you a teacher of religious things? How are you a teacher of the Bible and you don't understand this? Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, you must be born again. What Jesus is saying is that all people need something to happen to them that changes them so that they now know their need for forgiveness. Until you, have, until you have had God work in your heart and then cause your heart to say, I need God to forgive me, you will never be saved. You will not go to heaven. Once you realize that you need to be saved, that you need forgiveness for your sins, and then you hear that Jesus is the one who came to do that, it is indeed good news and your soul finds rest in the fact that Jesus is the answer to what your heart needs. Born again means that God has saved me and now I am a believer in God. I'm a child of God and my sins are forgiven. Peter here says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. 
If you are here last week, you saw me trying to explain what it means to be elect exiles, to about foreknowledge, and about um, what it means that God has chosen us to be His people. And I gave this illustration about God being over here and, and all people that God's ever made being over here and how it is God coming and saving people. Many of you remember me doing this. This is the idea behind God has caused us to be born again. Nobody is born again until God causes them to be born again. That's what Peter is writing. Tom Schreiner writes, the focus therefore is on God's initiative in producing new life. God does that. No one takes any credit for being born. We know this. It is something that happens to us. When a baby is born, the baby had nothing to do with it. When a Christian is born, the Christian had nothing to do with it. God worked in their heart, gave them the new life, and in giving them the new life, He has given them faith to respond and come to God. This is what Peter is writing about when he says, it is the great mercy of God in which God has caused us to be born again. Now what happens in that new birth is a living hope. You see that there. <coughs> the idea of hope in the Bible is a strong one. When you add the descriptor living to it, it is so comforting. Hope, as I've said, is you knowing that things are going to be better and you are trusting in that. A living hope reminds us that our hope is not just something that rests here on these pages that's from long ago and you and I have some optimism in it. That's not just it. The Bible is telling us that when God made us born again, when we had new life in and of ourselves, there is inside of us now the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, living that assures us hope is real. Hope is coming. Hope is that I've got eternal life. And according to God's great mercy, when He caused us to be born again, He gave us a living hope. Christians are those people who regardless of where life is or what life is like, they have a real and true hope. Now, Peter later in this chapter, if you'll just look at verse 23, verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter speaks about this new birth, born again, again. In verse 23 he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. That's a little more insight to the new birth. When God makes somebody born again, it is not through something that can go away. See, when God saves somebody, it is sure. That's why we believe in eternal security. When God changes your heart, your heart can never be changed back. When God calls you from life to death, you can never go back to, from death to life. You can never go back to death. When God removes your sins from you and washes you clean, you can never make yourself dirty again in the righteousness of Christ. Now, you can sin again, but those sins are going to continually be washed away, even future sins, because the believer has a hope in Jesus that my sins are always going to be forgiven. And so Christians are those who are always turning to God and repenting. It will happen later on this year, later on this week, that I will sin against God. But my soul, because I have the, I've been born again, my soul will say, God, please forgive me of my sins. And I'm trusting in Christ that He died for my sins. And my only right standing with you is based off of Jesus, not me. God, forgive me. And He will. 
This is what Peter's meaning in verse 23 when he says the, the new birth, the born again has happened out of an imperishable seed, that being the living and abiding Word of God. Y'all, the Word of God is the most sure thing in all of creation. This is why we are people who are so devoted to it. We commit ourselves to this above everything else in the world. Whatever this book is saying, we want to believe and love and align ourselves with. And Peter writes that according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Well, how? Why could we be so confident in that we would have hope? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul seems to be saying that you can hinge everything in the world, everything in the Bible, everything in your experience, everything of true religion, and everything in Christianity on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes that if Christ is not risen from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, that you and I, above all people, are the most to be pitied. We're a joke. If Christ is not really risen from the, from the dead, then you and I are wasting our time here today. Church life, Christianity, a pursuit of holiness, a hatred for sin, makes no sense and has no real meaning apart from the resurrection of Christ. What does the resurrection mean? The resurrection reminds us of the death of Christ. See, Jesus is God and He came and He lived and He taught us and He showed us. He explained God to us. And then He was killed on the cross. He was sinless. But the Bible teaches us that the reason why He was killed on the cross was for us. It was in God's love. It was in God's mercy that Christ died for us. Literally, while Christ is hanging on the cross, suffering, yet not dying yet, God takes the sins of the world and puts them on Christ. And when God then saw the sins of the world, my sins and your sins, on Christ, God turns His back on His Son and pours out His wrath, His hatred for sin, on Jesus. Jesus suffered and died for our sins. And they buried Him. And then three days later, He was back. He was alive. And He went to the very people who had sinned. And He said, I'm victorious for you. Not sin, not death, not Satan, Nothing can stop God from what He is doing. You and I see the resurrection of Jesus as the most victorious thing that there is. It's the most important thing in the whole world. That Christ is risen from the dead. This is what Peter is talking about. When he says that God in His mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You can filter every single experience that you're having. And in a room like this, there are a lot of people experiencing a lot of different things. Sometimes life is really, really good. And you're thinking, man, i got the blessings all around me. I'm happy. Things are good. I like this life. Things are going well. And then you start asking, why? Why am I in that boat? Because I know a lot of people around me who aren't. Why is it that some of you would have it so good? Money's flowing. Children are healthy. It seems like, man, life is just great. And even in that, you have to ask, why? And even in that, you have to know, it's not going to stay that way forever. And then on the other hand, there's some people who never feel that way. 
There are some people who think, hey, even on the best day, I've got burdens that I know that life's about to get hard. There are some people who are living in the light of this life is awful. Life just doesn't stack up. I read another article this week of a former NBA player, pro basketball player, who writes about how even in the midst of being a pro basketball player with million dollar contract and million dollar shoe contract said, I was in the deepest depression of my life. I wanted to kill myself. I had thoughts of suicide. Why? Because life often puts us in that position. There's nothing in this life that will anchor down happiness. Now, there are some things in this life that will give us happiness, but we know it to be coming and going. And we know it to not be lasting. Even the person that is here today, alive and well, healthy and happy, knows it won't always be that way. I did a funeral this week for a lady, a young lady, a really young lady, who was an only child. It was a funeral for her mother. Her mother was pretty young. I did a funeral for her. You know what happened just nine days before this funeral? Her father's funeral. They'd been married 37 years. Both of them died nine days apart. This single child lady lost her mom and dad within a week and two days. Nine days. That's hard. That is really, really hard. And you know what is the only thing that might give some meaning to that? The fact that Christ has risen from the dead and given us a hope that one day we will be risen from the dead too. Bring all of your burdens, bring all of your worries, bring all of our frustrations in life and try to find something that will comfort them if it is not in, we will live after this. And you will see that there are no answers. But when we find our souls anchored in the fact that Jesus Christ is God, and he died on our behalf. And then he rose again. You and I will see that there is great hope in our future salvation. I will one day live forever with God. And that gives me hope. This is what Peter's writing. Hope in our future salvation. Hope that one day soon... We will be with God in heaven forever. Hope that death and the worst of things now and the end of life is not enough to ruin our hope, to cancel our hope, or to cause us to lose hope. Jesus Christ died and lives forever, and whoever has been born again believing in Him will one day live with Him too. That is our hope. Peter writes, praise God. We have hope in our future salvation. Now, then he starts to describe it in verse 4. He says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable. This inheritance is our eternal life. This inheritance is that we will live forever with God. And he reminds us that it is imperishable. It does not go away. What type of a hope is it really? What type of eternal life is it really if it eventually goes away? It doesn't. It's imperishable. It will last forever. It is sure. 
Then he says it's undefiled. There's nothing wrong about it. There's nothing in it that you should question. There's nothing that has polluted it. There's nothing that has made it inconsistent or not believable. It is undefiled. Our hope in eternal life, this inheritance that we have with God in heaven, is imperishable and it is undefiled. And then thirdly, he says, it is unfading. You and I know this. I, I hate to bring it up, but it's so true. Every single positive thing in our lives is ultimately fading. Even our families that we love so much eventually wear out. Even our families eventually disappear. We're all going to die. Eventually it gets to where we can't spend our money. If our money is what our hope is, it gets to where we can't spend it. Eventually our health, if that's what our comfort is in, eventually our health is gone. Things fade away. Everything that has been created will fade away. Everything. But our hope in Jesus and eternal life does not fade. It does not perish. It is not defiled. It does not fade. This strength that we have, this hope in our future salvation, because of Jesus being alive and risen from the dead, is as sure as sure can get. And Peter is reminding these people of this, and he says, praise God because of it. Tom Schreiner writes, their hope, in other words, is the hope of the resurrection. The triumph over death. Hence, whatever happens to them in this world is trivial compared, compared to the blessing of the future resurrection. Go on to verse 5. He says, Those that are born again who have this living hope according to the great mercy of God are by God's power being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. These people who have the living hope, who have set their lives up to find its fullest meaning in the future salvation, all of their hope is that one day they will be with God and it causes every other experience in life to fall in line with that or to be seen in light of that. These people are being guarded by God's power. Which means you cannot get that away from them. There's not an attack. There's not an enemy. There's not a life. There's not a circumstance that is able to cause them to lose the hope. That's what is meant by the new birth and the living hope that is inside of us. The hope that is inside of us, the living hope, is not something that's controlled by our circumstances. They're being guarded by God, by the power of God. Through faith. Does everybody see that? At the end of the day, what our hope is, is that we are believing. We believe in God. We believe that God loves us. And even if we have lived in such a way that people do not love us, we believe that God loves us. Even if we have lived in such a way that people who are not gracious see our sins as the biggest thing in our lives, and they know us to be people who are unworthy, you and I have the hope that even as unworthy people, God is merciful to us. It is according to His great mercy that you and I have been born again and have a living hope. And what is guarding us, the power of God, is that we are believing. We believe 
that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that He lives again. It says that through our faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christians are people who know they will be saved. And that hope is living inside of them. We praise God for that. That in His mercy, He has made us that way. Now I want you to think about being a persecuted Christian. Peter is writing to people living in the Middle East who the whole of the world is against them, that following Christ and His teaching is wrong. And I want you to think about receiving this letter and being reminded of the living hope in you, how it is imperishable, how it is undefiled, how it is unfading, and how the resurrection of Christ gives so much meaning to our lives and deaths. Folks, that is happening today. I don't know how much in your life is causing you to think this life doesn't satisfy me. I don't know how down and out you are here today. But I want to remind you that there are some places in the world where life is so incredibly hard. There's a good and faithful ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. You can get their magazine monthly for free. And it's, so, it's, just, a, it's just a group that works hard to, to send out the message of Christians around the world being persecuted and they seek to support them. Voice of the Martyrs is a good and trustworthy ministry that we like. I want to read you this article about what's happening in Pakistan. It says, This man is one of 14 frontline people working in Pakistan where Christians have been imprisoned for life and sentenced to death for speaking against the religion there. They use Pakistan as a safe haven for training and for carrying out terrorist attacks. Those are the religious people there. The frontline workers supported by Voice of the Martyrs travel throughout the country attending religious festivals and dis- distributing Christian literature. The religious people there gather to hear fanatical leaders preach at the festivals. And they are often recruiting people to be involved in their religion. The evangelists enter the festivals quietly. They distribute Christian literature and they engage in conversation with anyone who seems interested. They're often threatened with beatings. During one distribution, listen to this, A mob of angry extremists attacked an outreach group, dislocating one team member's jaw. When police arrived, they arrested the Christians for creating a public disturbance. They didn't go in there at all to create a disturbance. They did it quietly, but they were arrested for it. Now listen to this last paragraph. While in jail, the evangelism team began singing praise songs to God. That only happens when you have a living hope inside of you. While in jail, the evangelism team began singing praise songs to God even as they were bleeding from their injuries. They had just been attacked. Several curious inmates watched the Christians. And one said, if the Jesus you follow is really so great, then he should be strong enough to have me released this very day. A few hours later, the inmate was released. And before leaving, he told everyone else in the jail, listen to these men. What they are sharing about is the truth. Voice of the Martyrs writes this article, has a picture of the, of the very people who are doing it. These people are spreading the name of Jesus and being attacked and beaten for it, thrown in jail. While in jail bleeding, they are singing songs and God is using them. Why in the world would anybody live that way? Because we know we have hope in our future salvation. 
this earth is not what we're looking for to satisfy us. Even when this earth does satisfy us, we know that it is often a mirage. We are thankful for it, but we do not put our hope in it. Our hope is in Jesus, God who loves us, who died to forgive us of our sins, and that one day we will be with him forever. That's our hope. It's in our future salvation. Secondly, we praise God because joy, we have joy until our salvation comes. The truth is we know that Jesus has not come back yet. And we have not died yet, which means you and I are left living here. And sometimes it's good, but sometimes it's not. We're living in the midst of this. Look at verse 6. This is what Peter goes on to write about. He says, in this you rejoice. That's rejoicing in your salvation, rejoicing in your living hope. But he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Listen to me, church. The Bible in no means ever says that because of your living hope, life will be good and easy here. It never says that. And if you've been listening to a preacher or listening to teaching that says something along those lines, I want you to know it's wrong and it's not biblical. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches somewhat the opposite. That if you have a living hope that one day you will be saved and with God forever, be prepared for difficulty, trials, and suffering here. That's just the way it goes. But understand that those difficulties and those trials are temporary compared to eternity. He says, in this you rejoice, but for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Folks, can you hear today that Christianity, this awesome thing that we're in, often comes with trials, often comes with grieving. If you're here today and you're grieving, don't think it means that something's not right. Don't think it means that God's not present. Don't think it means that you're not saved and with faith. Be reminded that your hope will carry you to your future salvation. Be reminded that God has given you truth to trust in. We're just living here until the return of Christ. He keeps going. Verse 7. Through these trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is telling these believers who are suffering in persecution that the trials they're going through are only something that are going to make them stronger. That that God is testing them, but the genuineness of their faith is just going to rise through it. Real Christians who have the living hope according to the mercy of God and who have been born again know that trials are coming. They stay strong through the trials. And after the trials, they're still saying, praise God. That's what Christians are. And that's what Peter's writing to them. I know many of people who are still holding on to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they've got some of the hardest lives. My heart breaks to think about so many people I know who just have hard lives. Sometimes it's hard because that's just the way the ball bounces. Life's hard sometimes. Sometimes it's hard because in our sinfulness, you and I often make bad decisions. Many of us are still living with consequences that hurt our hearts over things that we've done in the past. Life is hard. And while life is hard, you and I are not to think God doesn't care. We are to say, no, God cares. And He's taking care of me through this. He's testing my faith and my faith will be seen strong. 
Because my faith is in Jesus Christ, dying for my sins, risen for the certainty of my salvation. And I have that living hope. If you'll turn back just a little bit to James chapter 1. James is the book right before 1 Peter. James starts his book this way. James chapter 1 verse 2. I love the book of James. It's one of the best ones in my opinion. It's so practical. It's all about uh, persevering. It's all about living it. It's all about walking the walk and talking the talk. James chapter 1 verse 2. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds. You see that? He says you're going to go through trials that are awful, that sting, that hurt. There are going to be days where you think, I wish this wasn't happening. I wish things would get better. Can I not catch a break? Do things ever look up? James knows those days come. He says count it joy. Verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James wants you and I to understand that for a believer in Jesus that has the living hope, the trials are only to make us stronger. We use the phrase a lot, what doesn't kill me only makes me stronger. And it's biblical and it's true. God is growing us to be stronger through this. In the midst of our suffering, you and I are to have joy because we know salvation is coming. Let me say that again. In the midst of our suffering... You and I are to have joy in God because we know that our salvation is coming. There was a song I learned years ago. I first heard it when I was on a mission trip in a third world country. And the believers there were singing it. Since then, from time to time, I've heard people singing it here. It's just a little chorus that they sing in churches. Especially at a church in a country where being a Christian is frowned upon. Especially at a church where being a Christian, many people don't like it. The song goes, Soon and very soon, we are going to meet the King. Soon and very soon, we are going to meet the King. That's the first lines. And what that carries with it is the idea of our living hope. Right now is not what I'm longing for. Soon and very soon is a comforting word to all who are hoping and waiting for the salvation that comes from God. The next next line says, no more crying there. We are going to meet the King. No more crying there. We are going to meet the King. See, we find ourselves crying from time to time because life puts us in that position. Our living hope reminds us that there will one day be a time where we are with God and no more crying. The third verse says, no more dying there. We are going to meet the king. No more dying there. We are going to meet the king. I love that chorus. That's a chorus that believers who are in the middle of struggle, in the middle of hardship, in the middle of persecution, have learned to sing to themselves in line with the word of God, reminding them of their living We are to be a people. We are to be a people who have joy until our salvation comes because of the living hope. One commentator says this provides a great incentive for those that are suffering, reminding them that the veil of tears will not last long, that a great reward is laid up for those who are faithful. 
That is the hope of the believer. Lastly, let's look here at verse 8. Peter writes, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Christians are those people who because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, all of our hope is in Him. So we have hope in our future salvation and we have joy until our salvation comes. If you're here today and you don't have hope, and you don't have joy in that hope, I ask you to believe. I ask you to come to Christ asking for the forgiveness of sins, that you would be born again and have a living hope. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for First Peter and Peter writing this letter to Christians and assuring them of their living hope. God, thank you that you in your mercy have caused us to be born again. Lord, I pray that here today you would cause us to see if our hearts are set on you for this living hope. Strengthen us, God. Give us faith. And God, if there are people here who have never believed in you, come to be born again. Work in their hearts that today people would be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.